What the Fab podcast, where empowered women empower women through candid conversations, inspiring stories, and tangible tips. I'm your host, Elise Armitage. I'm a digital creator, and I left my nine to five job at Google to chase my dreams of being an entrepreneur. I'm so happy to have you here. Let's get into some real talk. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the What the Fab podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We have a great interview that I think you're really going to enjoy. I was fascinated, like it was riveting. (laughs) So I'm excited to get into it. But before we dive into all that, I just want to say a very heartfelt thank you to all of you who listened to my most recent episode, number 16. Um, That one is titled Hashtag Stop Asian Hate, a conversation on violence, race, and identity with four angry Asian women. So in that conversation, um, I had three friends and family members who are Asian American women as well join me for a conversation um, about race and identity and what's going on right now with the increase in violence against Asian Americans. And the response has been um, really overwhelming. And I am just really grateful for all of you who took the time to listen to the episode. I know it's a long one. Um, we ended up chatting for two hours and it was funny when we first hopped on, I thought like, okay, maybe this is going to be like a 30 minute conversation because it's a lot of things that are difficult to talk about. They're not fun to talk about. And I don't want to pressure anyone to like delve into personal stories or reflections that are like too, too, painful but I was really grateful for the whole group. I mean, they we went there. So if you um, haven't listened to it yet, I definitely encourage you to check out episode number 16. I also want to give a quick plug and shout out to a recent reviewer. If you haven't taken a second to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please do so. It's the best way to support this podcast. And so this one is by Ori Chan and she says, my new favorite podcast, excellent information. Elise is such a natural podcaster and her voice is very soothing. Looking forward to listening to many more episodes in the near future. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Ori. I appreciate you. And like I said, if y'all haven't taken a second to rate and review, please go ahead and do that and hit subscribe while you're at it because we have lots of great conversations in the works. Today, we have my friend Lauren Hawk from Lauren Cakes joining us for a conversation. And we talk about, I'm, I'm really impressed with Lauren's content because she just does a really great job of spreading awareness about mental health and resources. She is um, excellent at speaking out against racism. She is a true anti-racist. I appreciate all of her posts about it. And um, I definitely learn a lot from the pieces of content that she shares. Um, we also talk a bit about her her business as a blogger. And then a good chunk of the conversation is spent discussing how she grew up Mormon and then left the Church of Latter-day Saints and just that entire experience, which as you can imagine, 
imagine is an incredibly um, personal and up until now private journey that she hadn't really spoken in an in-depth way about um, publicly. So I really appreciate Lauren for sharing so much about this journey and I hope that you find the conversation um, both fascinating and also empowering. Uh, I'm really proud of her for following what was true to herself. Um, And I cannot imagine how difficult that was when, especially when you're surrounded by this community, your friends, your family, your entire kind of, you know, all of your lifelines, all of your people are a part of this um, group and religion. And so to leave that, I just can only imagine how difficult that was. Um, But I will let Lauren tell you all about it in this episode. So let's get into Lauren's bio. Lauren Hawk is a content creator based in Salt Lake City, Utah. She started her blog, LaurenCakes.com, eight years ago, and she promotes kindness, equality, and self-love on all of her channels. She's a big advocate for mental health awareness and an outspoken anti-racist and ally. I am so excited to have her on the show. And so with that, let's welcome Lauren to the What The Fab podcast. Hello, Lauren. Welcome to the What the Fab podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. I feel honored that you wanted to have me on here. (laughs) You are so sweet. I'm so excited to chat with you today. I have like so many topics that I jotted down. I'm excited to dive in. Um, But before we dive into that, I just wanted to give a little bit of context for listeners of how you and I know each other. Um, I can't believe we've never met in person. Hopefully that is going to change soon. But you and I are part of a diverse travel blogger group that we started with a few other girls. It's called Babes That Wander, and we launched it right at the beginning of 2020 with all of these hopes and dreams of traveling together and, you know, having a more kind of inclusive and diverse group of women that are going on media trips and featuring different places. And then, of course, 2020 happened and Babes That Wander didn't. (laughs) But we've still been, I feel like we talk every week, we've kept in touch, and we're just kind of like getting ready to actually officially, officially launch the group. Yeah, it's the light is at the end of the tunnel. I feel like there's hope and we're going to be traveling soon. I can feel it in my bones. I can feel it. I'm here for it. I can't wait. So for those who are not familiar with you, could you just give a quick introduction on yourself? Give us a little bit of background on on who you are, how you started your blog and your brand, Lauren Cakes. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Lauren Hawk, but I go by Lauren Cakes Online. It's kind of my online persona. And that is a nickname that my mom used for me all throughout childhood. And it just kind of, it gives me feelings of nostalgia and makes me feel like my true self. So I wanted to embody that with my brand online. I am based in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I live with my husband and uh, two cats that are, we treat like kids. (laughs) And um, I am a full-time blogger, but I was a former high school teacher. And so it's just been kind of a journey trying to figure out how to do this full-time and freelance for myself. Yes. Um, love that. I love your two cats on stories. They're so cute. They just like have such funny little personalities. Um, tell us about like how long have you been blogging full time? What was that transition like? When did you and why did you decide to make that leap? I started blogging full time. Um, it would be the last school day I had was in May of 2019. 
And so technically I would have said that summer, but I always had summers off as a teacher. And so I honestly don't feel like I really had my footing when I started uh, full-time blogging. I had been blogging for six plus years when I went full-time, but there just was a lot of curveballs thrown our way, like COVID. You know, I'm like, does the last year count towards my uh, <laughs> business uh, portfolio? You know, so it's been very interesting to figure that out for myself and uh, just forge ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I relate to that so hard. I left to um, left my gig to blog full time at the beginning of 2019, so kind of similar timing. And I felt like I had such a strong start. Like I was so busy that first year, and then 2020 hit, and the pandemic hit, and it was crickets. And I was like, "Well, it was nice. It was nice while it lasted. I was a full time blogger for a year. This is it for me." <laughs> but fortunately, things have really like turned around and brands have figured out that like we, you know, we were going to be in this pandemic shelter in place thing for a while and we have to figure out how to speak to people while at home. So mm-hmm. um, it's, but you're right. It's definitely been, it was a curveball, and it was like, got to figure out what we're going to do from here. Um, I want to talk specifically about your audience because I've noticed that they are very engaged, which is a great thing. Um, I've also noticed that they can be a little bit hypercritical. Like they, I feel like they kind of pick out things that I wouldn't necessarily even like, like think of. And so I was just kind of curious how you have gone about building this like super engaged audience and then where this kind of like, I don't know if, I don't know how you would describe the ones that are like really hypercritical, like if they're trolling or if they're just like really digging into things or they like have certain standards. Like, I don't, I don't know how you would describe that, but I kind of would like to hear from you, like how you have built your audience and, and kind of how, um, you see that growing. It is kind of a conundrum to me. Spencer and I were just talking about this yesterday. I I don't think that I get a lot of like engagements. Like my viewers don't technically like like or share my my stuff, but I do get a lot of comments and I feel like the people that are engaged are like very engaged. I have people that have become friends that I talk to daily and they just had started as somebody that was like one of my audience, you know? And I think part of that is because a lot of my audience is a lot like me (laughs) and I'm hypercritical, not only of myself, but of others. And I just, I have really high expectations for other human beings. And I think that somehow I attract those same type of people, not just online, but in real life. And so I, I think that maybe I open that up myself, like a can of worms a little bit for people to, I, I become vulnerable and people feel like it's okay to like pick apart. Um, and sometimes that's awesome. You know, you want to hear feedback, you want to change and grow. And sometimes it's not necessarily feedback that is, uh, like a, uh, positive critique. It's not something that you can change. So I, I'm not really sure how that was cultivated as an audience. Um, but I do feel that I gathered more of a, an engaged audience because I answer every single DM. Um, I respond to comments and I make sure that I also engage back with them on their profiles. I want everybody to feel like what they are getting out from me is something it's like a 
a relationship per se. You know, I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah. And uh, another thing that I have noticed about you is that you're very business savvy. Like we've done a couple of clubhouse chats together about the business of blogging and talking about rates, how much content creators should be charging, um, as well as like what to look out for in your contracts. And I was just really impressed with your knowledge of navigating like these topics and like legalese and as well as how you position yourself and communicate to brands. Um, how do you feel like you were able to gain that type of expertise? Because you're, besides, you know, your experience with blogging, you mentioned that you were a teacher before, and I would imagine you didn't have to deal with a lot of like, you know, negotiating every single week with brands and like, um, super ridiculous contracts that ask for like your firstborn child <laughs> along with all of your photos and everything that we sometimes receive. Yeah. Um, so I was just curious about that. You know, that's, I feel really flattered that you noticed that about me. Um, I think that I, I call myself a lifetime learner. I'm always learning and I'm always listening. And I think that's really important if you want to succeed as an entrepreneur is to listen to other people's experiences. I have made so many mistakes my own way and learned the hard way that I would rather learn from other people's hard mistakes. You know, I don't want to have to go through that myself. And so I am always open to hearing how other people have handled situations or what they would say. And, um, I think that I get a lot of information via Facebook groups Mm. and somebody posts something on a Facebook group that I'm in, I, I have notifications set up so that I see all posts in Facebook groups. And I check it throughout the day and I will turn on post notifications for posts in Facebook groups where I'm like, okay, I want to hear all the answers to this. And then I will get all of the notifications, see what everybody has to say, gather the information that I need to sift through it and decide, all right, this sounds like this is how I feel as well. And I'm kind of that way. I love Reddit. (laughs) I'm a typical millennial. I'm all over Reddit. And so I do the same thing with Reddit um, as well. And so not only was it trial and error, but I honestly would say that listening to other people is key. And if I had to start over with blogging, I would have invested the money to hire a mentor that maybe had been through the same process so that they could show me the ropes or even, um, been an intern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's super smart. What are, um, some of the, like for our blogger listeners, what are some of the Facebook groups where you kind of find some of those like, that gold and those nuggets that you're actually learning from? Because I feel like there can be a lot of noise and overwhelming with like all the Facebook groups that I'm part of. (laughs) So I'm wondering which ones have been like the most valuable for you. The two that I look at daily are the reward style bloggers and reward style is that affiliate affiliate commission company that we're both a part of. Um, So there's a Facebook group with that. And I really value the opinions in there because I feel like most women that post in there are they take their business seriously and they're professional. Um, and then I, uh, look at another one called social media influencers that has 50,000 members. And so you really do have to sift through that one because there's a lot of different experience levels in there, but I, I keeping your eyes open is the most important thing to having your own business. 
This episode is brought to you by Tailwind. If you're a blogger or you have any type of website and you want to drive traffic to it through Pinterest, you need Tailwind. It's a social media scheduling tool that gets real results in less time. You know I am all about that. I use it to schedule all of my pins and you can sit down, take 30 minutes and schedule your pins for the entire week and Tailwind will automatically push them live throughout the week at the optimum times when your followers are the most active. The other thing that's amazing about Tailwind is the community feature through tribes. So you share your pins in other like-minded tribes or groups, and you all repin each other's pins, giving everyone's content a huge boost. It's the epitome of rising tides raise all ships. I've seen my website traffic from Pinterest go from a few thousand visitors a month to tens of thousands of hits just from Pinterest alone, and this really began to climb when I started using Tailwind. You can also use it to schedule your Instagram posts. Again, I am all about time batching for max efficiency, so you can just sit down, take an hour, and schedule all your Instagram posts, and Tailwind will automatically push them live for you throughout the week. You don't have to do anything beyond that. You don't even have to open your phone up. It's amazing. So if you'd like to try Tailwind for free, I've got a referral link for you. Go to whatthefab.com Tailwind for a free trial plus a $15 credit if you do decide to hop on a paid plan in the future. That's whatthefab.com slash tailwind, and tailwind is spelled tail, T-A-I-L, wind, W-I-N-D. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, I'm definitely going to like take notes here because I've been thinking lately, like I feel like I need to be a little bit more active in some of these groups because I, when I do pop in and I'm active and, and both like I share my knowledge and I learn from others, like it's like, oh, this is super valuable, but it definitely takes that time and effort and like conscious effort to actually go in and take a look and see like what conversations are being had. Um, so, okay, you've encouraged me to do that a little bit more. Thank you. And I will say that once you uh, become like an active conversation starter or conversation member that people recognize you as a group member and they see your name and they're more willing to add to whatever you post in there. And I think that that's valuable too, because if you're not an active member in these groups, then people are less likely to respond to your questions or, you know, whatever you have to say. And so I like to make sure that I'm active in order to kind of cultivate those online relationships with other bloggers. I don't even really know. (laughs) No, that's super smart and such a good point. And I do notice that you're really active um, in the reward style group for sure. So I think that's like such a great tip. Um, I want to chat a little bit about some of your content because I've seen that mental health is something that you're really vocal about on your channels. And so I was wondering if you could share more about your own mental health journey and why you are so passionate about spreading awareness and resources around mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I am diagnosed with anxiety. And so I take medication daily for my anxiety. Um, I started my mental health journey when I was in fifth grade. I gave myself ulcers because I was Mm. so anxious, but it, it was like a long process of figuring out that that's what it was. And, uh, I was originally diagnosed with depression and I don't think that anxiety and depression are far off, but I don't, think of myself as having depression. I think that I have anxiety that can turn into depression because of my negative thinking patterns. And so I think that I, um, had to kind of learn that through 
trial and error with different medications, different uh, therapy techniques. And so it was kind of really difficult throughout high school to manage it. I was in denial. I'd be like, I'm feeling great because I'd been taking my medication for a few months. And then I would be like, I don't need this medicine because I was a a teenager that just wanted to be independent. And I'd go off medicine and then a few weeks later I'd crash and it would just be a total burn. And so luckily I had a really strong family support. Um, there's lots of mental health and mental illness that runs in my family. And so everybody is very uh, familiar with it. They know how to handle it. They know how to treat it. And so I feel lucky in that regard because uh, when I haven't been feeling well, my mom always um, comforted me and she always wanted me to get help. And so I feel like that's sort of where my story with sharing mental health online stems from is because I know that not everybody has had that type of support Mm -hmm. or acknowledgement or validation about their mental health. And that is basically the first step in getting healthy is recognizing, Hey, I think I need some help and it's more than I can handle on my own, whether that be medication, therapy, anything that is, uh, conducive to having like a better mental state. And so I want to empower other people to feel like, Hey, this is normal. Uh, I can get out of this. I can feel better. This is not my best me and I want to be my best me. And so I think that talking about that is how, um, other people can feel like they fit in with mental health. And I think way more people have mental illness than, uh, is recognized and it's, it's so normal. (laughs) And I also, um, taught special education when I was a high school teacher. And so I was, um, teaching students that had disabilities that were learning disabilities, but a lot of them also had some sort of mental health that was going along with it, like OCD or, um, some of them had, uh, autism, you know, those sort of things. And so I have always been really familiar with, uh, taking care of your mental state. And I feel empowered myself to share that. That is amazing. And I think that, you know, you had the the support of your family at a young age, which is so crucial. But I would imagine that like far less people at that time when you were like a teenager were speaking openly about mental health and, and sharing awareness and resources. So I can only imagine how that would feel um, as a teenager now to be able to like, if they're going through something to be able to look at a page like yours and like feel seen and also feel like they have like kind of an action plan of like, okay, I need to find some resources for myself. I need to talk with, you know, my parents about this. Like here are some other things that are kind of like tools that can be in my toolbox um, instead of like feeling alone or like ashamed. Um, So I think that's really awesome that you speak so openly about it on your channels. Thank you. And I love that you call it a toolbox because that's exactly it. Uh, Something I recognized late last year after the pandemic, um, I've always known it, but I wasn't openly recognizing it in myself is that um, I had phobias that were kind of keeping me from really living my best life. I have like medical phobia where I'd be like, oh my gosh, my chest hurts. Am I having a heart attack? Which is like not normal. And that totally kicks my anxiety and my, uh, 
cortisol up and that's not something I needed. And I realized that medication helps my, the chemicals in my brain work, but I also needed to work on my mental health from a thinking standpoint. And so I've, uh, done mindfulness before, uh, but I really wanted somebody else that could guide, kind of guide me through that. And that's why I started going to therapy. And I feel like therapy is life-changing I don't think that you even need to feel like you have mental health issues to go to therapy. Everybody could change their thinking patterns to become um, like more healthier, a better human because they, society has put that on us. You know, we all have these mental, I'm sorry, not mental health. uh, We all have thinking patterns that maybe need to be changed a little bit and therapy helps with that. I could not agree with that more. I think there's kind of like this stigma that therapy is only for people that have like a problem or like you're saying, like a specific thinking pattern, like OCD or something that's like very clear and like needs to be quote unquote fixed. Um, But I just think it's like part of your um, just kind of mental wellness upkeep, like no matter who you are. And um, I first started experimenting with therapy when I was at Google because it was a free resource. They had licensed therapists on campus and you got, I think it was like 10 free sessions a year. So I would go like basically once a month. Um, and I was like, let me just try it. Like Google has so many, you know, amazing perks and resources. Like I should just take advantage of it. And I loved it. I loved my therapist so much. And we talked about all kinds of different things like relationships, you know, with family members, in-laws, my husband, friends, my coworkers. We also talked a lot about like just personal things that I probably would have never realized about myself. And like you were saying, like thinking patterns, um, like I can be very like hypercritical of myself um, and hard on myself and kind of that like perfectionist mindset. And I can also project that onto other people that I that I'm really close to and I have super high expectations for. And it's not necessarily the healthiest thing for a relationship. Um, we talked about like just different things in terms of my business and how I wanted to define success and like set myself up each day. Like it was fantastic. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think that like sometimes people don't even really think about therapy as a resource that's like for them. They think that it's like for other people, but I think everyone can absolutely benefit from it. Yeah. And sorry, I got on a tangent. What I was going to say is that, uh, I use what I learn in therapy as part of my toolbox back to your toolbox comment, because everybody just needs resources that they can go to in a crunch, right? (laughs) Yes. Definitely. Well, um, I don't think I ever shared this with you, but you actually inspired me in some of your stories to make a change that helped with my own personal mental health and wellness. Um, I think it was last year you were sharing about how you were no longer going to be, or very sparingly, using um, face filters on Instagram stories. And you kind of like spoke about why that is and, and kind of the realization that like, not only does it make your audience think that they should be looking a certain way and like having this certain ideal, but it also can affect your own personal mental wellness because you kind of, (laughs) you have these stories where you're like kind of starting to condition yourself to think that you almost 
actually look like that. And then you look in the mirror or like you turn on your phone and the front camera is accidentally on and you're like, oh my God, like that's what I really look like. And I started thinking about it and I was also receiving some messages from people when I was using story filters that were saying, oh my God, your skin is flawless. Like your skin is amazing. You look gorgeous. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't what I actually look like. And I kind of just thought that people knew that there was a filter on it because, you know, you can kind of see the little text at the top corner, like such and such filter, whatever. But these were like, it was a mix of people I knew personally and people that, you know, I, I've never met before. But the ones that I did know personally, like they were tech savvy people. There were like girlfriends that I used to work with at Google and, you know, people that I kind of would have thought they would know this isn't reality. This is a facade. This is a filter. Um, but it was actually kind of twisting what they thought was reality. And so, and I also, my sister, who I can always count on to call me out on my bullshit, was like, hey, what is up with these wild stories filters? Like, you look like a totally, like, completely different person. And also, you don't need them. Like, you need to stop using them. And it was hard. Like, when I made the decision to stop using them, I didn't, like, say anything on my stories. I just cold turkey stopped. And it was really hard because I had gotten used to these filters and I was like, oh my God, people can see my pores and my blemishes and my imperfections and blah, blah, blah. Um, But I'm really, really glad that I stopped using them because like now it's like my brain has readjusted and I'm like, I look great. This is fine. This is what I look like. Like, love it. Um, Whereas before it was like really, really hard to stop using them. So I just wanted to say thank you for being my inspiration for that. Thank you for telling me that. That means a lot to hear because you never know if what you're saying is kind of uh, like, does it mean anything? And I, I try to, I think I have a unique perspective because I taught high schoolers who are so impressionable. And when I went to school teaching, I never wore makeup. And um, a lot of times I couldn't wear outfits that I would wear by myself casual wear just because I had to be more in a professional dressed manner. And it was always interesting to hear their reactions. They're like, are you an Instagram model? But then they would see me in real life and they, they could see that, you know, Instagram is cool and it's still real life, but uh, there's more to it. And, you know, you're posting your best, pictures there. And I, so when I'm posting anything online, that's one of the filters I put my, I don't know if you do this too, but when I'm posting, I think about, okay, how will this affect this group of people? You know, my parents (laughs) is one of them, but also the high schoolers that follow me, uh, that know me, I want to make sure that they are feeling validated and seen and that I'm not representing something that they can't relate to. And so, uh, the filter thing, yeah, it's a big deal. I try not to use them. I use them every once in a while. I used them today, but I have to make sure I use them sparingly because like you, I would notice more of my skin tone and uh, I don't know. They're, they're pretty wild. It's even hard for me to, I think about like putting the Paris filter on that just smooths your skin instantly (laughs) and brightens it. Yes. And even that one's hard not to use all the time. You know, you just want to use it. And I know how my favorite influencers that are, have big followings, how I feel when I see their stories and they always have filters on. Sometimes I want them to drop the facade. 
You know, I want to see them real. I want to see them when they're not always wearing makeup. And so I think that's important. And thanks for sharing that message. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have stopped using them because for me, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> and if I just like use it once here and there, it's going to be like all the time. I, I just know it. So, um, but it's been a, like a really good um, just thing for me to try. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I caught your stories talking about that and gave that a try. Um, in terms of your content, I also want to talk about how you're really vocal about being an anti-racist and an ally. And, um, it's, you know, after the year that we had last year, and then also with all of the violence happening right now, um, against Asian Americans, it's something that's like really top of mind for me. Um, but as a white influencer, what does that mean to you? Like being an anti-racist and what does it mean to you to be an ally and how do you determine what you share on your channels? You know, last year was kind of a wake up call for me. I feel like I had never really recognized racial injustice. I was like, Oh, that's something that happens not where I live. You know, (laughs) that doesn't happen here. Um, it's not something that I partake in and I didn't recognize that I needed to actively be doing something to stop it and to promote anti-racism. And so it was really a good uh, wake up call for me to realize that I needed to be doing more. And I think that I'd all along been trying to make sure that I was inclusive, uh, not only of different races, but different body types, different education levels, you know, socioeconomic levels. And I just needed to make sure that I was holding other people accountable for it too you know, holding brands accountable and maybe being vocal. Uh, I felt like doing that wasn't enough. I had to actively make sure that other people were trying to do that too. Um, and so, uh, for me, I just want to make sure that everybody has the opportunities that I have had. I I almost said blessed, but I don't like to say the word blessed (laughs) because the hashtag (laughs) blessed got like stigmatized. (laughs) Um, I, I feel like I want everybody to have, uh, unique opportunities and that we should have an equal playing field. And, you know, if I have the opportunity to share and create an equal playing field because of my platform, it would be wrong not to do that. Right. Um, to not use my platform for good would be such a loss, such a a missed moment. And so I I try to be vocal about that just because I feel like I can be. And I, I would hope, I mean, I don't know. I hope that others feel the same way that have, uh, followings on social media, but we, we know that's not always true. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I love that so much. And it actually like fills me with so much hope hearing that you, because based on how vocal you are about it, I kind of would have thought that you had, had been like one of those high school kids that was like an activist and like, you know, like this is, it's shocking to me that actually you really started to like awaken to this last year because you're so excellent at like sharing that awareness and like taking real action and holding brands accountable, um, and doing things that actually move the needle. And so that just gives me so much like 
hope and um, makes me really, really happy to hear. Um, and I, I just know that I can always, you know, count on you both for like educating me. Like yeah. sometimes I'll, I'll see something that you share and I'll like go into a, you know, watch an IGTV video for 10 minutes. I'm like, wow, that was like really educational. I learned a lot. Like, I'm really glad that Lauren shared that. Um, and to just, you know, speak, speak up and speak out on, on what's happening. Um, I've been having some interesting conversations lately because I think that, um, well, I, I was asking some of my white influencer girlfriends, um, you know, why haven't you posted about, um, stop AAPI hate? Like, why haven't you posted about the violence that's happening? Obviously it's very personal to me as an Asian American woman. Um, and one of them was telling me, you know, I'm, I'm doing things behind the scenes. I'm donating. Um, but I don't want to post because I feel like it would just be performative. Like what would be the point of it? It would just look like I'm posting just to post. And, that was a really interesting conversation because I had never thought about it from that perspective. I had just assumed like, if you're not posting about it, you don't care. Um, but I also told her, you know, as someone with a platform, as a white influencer, um, mm -hmm. I think it's so important that you do share resources and awareness. Like if you donated, that's amazing. Like encourage other people to donate too. tell people where you donated and, say like, I'd love for you to join me. Um, you know, if you don't want to, to do that, like just spreading awareness is also super meaningful. Um, so that was, that was interesting to me because I hadn't really thought that that could be a reason that was like holding people back. Um, so yeah, I just encourage people to like err on the side of spreading awareness rather than like thinking, oh, it's going to come off a certain way. It's going to come off performative. Um, because on the flip side, not posting at all makes it seem like you don't care. Um, and it like, I, I really felt, especially the week of, um, the shooting in Atlanta, when I would see influencers just like going about their day and like posting, you know, stories about their try on hauls or their drink that they got at Starbucks, like that really hurt to like, not see them acknowledging what was happening and like speaking out against it. So, um, so yeah, I just appreciate you for always being super, super vocal. Thank you. I, I do understand the perspective of them worrying about it being performative. I've thought that myself, but the other side of that, like you said, is that other people that have felt affected by it would feel like I wasn't offering my support. And that was a bigger pull. Um, I've learned through, you know, life and my mental health journey. And as like a super sensitive person that having people recognize your feelings and just saying like, Hey, I see you, I hear you mm -hmm. makes a world of difference. And so they don't even have to like do much more than say like, I'm here to support you. And like, I stand by you. And that makes people feel so much better. And so that's where I would say with social injustice and posting online is that it's all about making sure that the people that you love know that they're loved and that they're supported no matter what. And in the meantime, if you can help other people feel like they want to support and show that support to them, uh, their friends and family, then that's great as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Quick break and a referral link that you are definitely going to want to use. This episode is brought to you by Airbnb. 
Now, I'm betting if you're listening to this podcast, you're familiar with Airbnb. You can book vacation rentals, homes, condos, and even experiences through Airbnb. I have a great referral link for you so you can get $65 off your next Airbnb booking. Just head to whatthefab.com slash Airbnb for that link. Now, this credit is for new customers only. So if you have a friend traveling with you in the group who's new to Airbnb, or maybe you're creating a new Airbnb account, that'll be the best way to go about getting that $65 credit. With the panty going on right now, Omid and I personally are really only doing road trips. I can't wait to travel abroad again, but for right now, we're looking at booking Airbnbs within California, like Joshua Tree, maybe Mendocino. Having a home away from home so I can travel safely and have my own space is key. So be sure to grab your Airbnb credit at whatthefab.com slash Airbnb. That's spelled air, B as in boy, and as in Nancy, B as in boy. Safe travels, and let's get back to the episode. Um, Okay, so switching gears a bit, I want to talk to you about something that we were messaging, um, DMing about. So you grew up Mormon um, and left the Church of Latter-day Saints after, I think, after getting married. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Tell us about that experience. Like, can you share more about your your childhood and upbringing first to share some context there? Yeah, and I actually think this ties in well to uh, what we're talking about because um, as somebody that was Mormon, uh, sometimes you're alienated and not now, obviously, but when you are part of a religion that's so uh, conservative, uh, people, you know, there's rumors you have to like get rid of all of these, uh, beliefs that people just automatically have the assumptions about it. But also I saw and witnessed because I was a, a member of the church when a lot of, uh, things were going on, like Prop 8 in California with the LGBTQ and, uh, you know, legalizing marriage. And I, I saw that and felt that and the pressure, um, to not legalize gay marriage because of the religion and what our prophet, that's the the person that we uh, thought. I'm saying we, like I'm part of the church still. I'm not. It's still a process. Mm-hmm. I live my whole life as a Mormon. And so I still like uh, say we sometimes when I'm talking about Mormons, but yeah. um, I'm no longer part of the Mormon church, but the prophet is just who uh, Mormons believe is like the spokesperson for God. And so, um, yeah, I think it ties in well because there were a lot of teachings that I had a hard time with. And when prophet was happening in California, I uh, lived in California at the time. And so um, I didn't agree with it. But I felt like people thought that because you uh, were a good religious member that you should do what the prophet told you to do, right? And so if you didn't do that, then you weren't a holy person or spiritual enough. And it's a very interesting mindset. That's why I, I feel like I can be a better human being outside of religion because I can make my own choices uh, to love other people based off of how my moral compass and what I think I want to support. And nobody else is telling me that I'm a bad person for 
choosing to love other people or allowing them to love other people the way that they do. Um, but yeah, I grew up super LDS is what they call it. Latter-day Saint or Mormon. Um, my dad was a bishop when I was probably like eight years old. Um, so a bishop is somebody that like leads a congregation, kind of like a preacher. And then, uh, he also was in what they call a stake presidency. So that's like, if you had several congregations meet together, he was like in that leadership. Um, and both of my parents are still LDS. Um, they're active members as we call it. And they go to church and my dad is always, you know, trying to share his spiritual feelings with us. And, um, it is a very interesting concept because I was so involved with the church that I understand how people feel and they relate to each other. It's almost a culture I'll say, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically in Utah. That's when I had the hardest time is because, um, I think they say it's like 50% of people in Utah are Mormon. Wow. I don't know if you should trust that statistic, but it's a lot. Like it's so, it's such a culture that you could be at work, like a professional setting. And people will ask you if you went on a Mormon mission or if you got married in the temple or, uh, they're, they're making judgments. I don't, do you know what garments are? No, no. Okay. Garments are, they are essentially underwear. So it's like an undershirt and underwear that people wear. Sometimes they call them magic underwear. They, they're white clothing and, uh, they're really sacred to Mormons. And essentially if you, uh, are a good standing Mormon and you're an adult, most people assume that you're wearing garments and it's something that you can see. So like men's shirts, you would see like their white undershirt, uh, women, you would know if they are, or they are not wearing them based on the clothing because you would have to cover them. So like a shirt, uh, would have to have cap sleeves and you couldn't show cleavage. Otherwise your garments would show. And that's not something that the church wanted for people. Um, but that's kind of a tangent. Uh, what I was getting at is that people in a work setting would judge you. They're like, Oh, is this person wearing garments? You know, and that's just living in Utah. <laughs> like people just assume you. Are Whoa. Yeah. It is next level here. And there, there was a lot of, uh, culture shock for me when I moved here because I grew up in Nevada and California. And then I moved to Utah when I was 17 and I really struggled with the fact that everybody around me was Mormon or understood the religion. Like people that didn't grow up Mormon, had been so surrounded by it that they knew everything about it, you know? So it's definitely, mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely all involved. Sorry. That was a long talk. That is questions throw them at me. No, I loved it. Super interesting. Um, had no idea what garments are. Um, so, okay. So you, you're, you're 17, you're in Utah. Did you, um, did you go to college in Utah as well? Yeah. So I moved to Utah halfway through my junior year because of my dad's job. And then I eventually went to college at Utah state, um, in Utah. So I have been here ever since we moved. 
Okay. And then um, your husband, was he Mormon too? Yes. Yeah, he was. He grew up in an uh, LDS family and he served a mission. And a mission for anybody that doesn't know that's listening is where somebody goes and spends 18 months to two years proselyting for the church. And typically they, if they go out of the country, they learn a new language um, they have to be very spiritual. There's strict schedules and they really have to like adhere to the religion. Only the holiest of you basically get sent home from your mission if you're not following the rules. And it's a lot of pressure. They um, have changed the ages a few times, um, but boys can go out when they're 18. And I don't know, I don't want to quote it wrong maybe girls can go out when they're 18 too. It used to be that boys were 19 and girls were 21 when they would go out. Um, so, and those are pivotal years. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so why is it that I feel like I actually, I'm not like super, super familiar with, you know, the Mormon religion and and that culture, but I did have quite a few Mormon friends when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when I was younger, I did kind of notice that as we got older, it was more kind of like, you know, the Mormons were encouraged, I think probably by, by their parents to like hang out with other Mormon kids. And so we kind of lost touch. And, and that was something that I noticed, not just with the Mormon religion, but I also had a couple of friends that were, um, very, very conservative Christian. And that, you know, same thing happened with those friends as well. Like their parents were like, yeah, you're one day they were just like, we don't hang out with Elise anymore. Like (laughs) you're going to hang out with all your conservative Christian friends. Um, Anyways, slight tangent, but so I, so I am a little bit familiar. Why is it that I, and maybe this is just my own, um, just my own experience, but is it true that I feel like I only see guys going out on missions? I don't know any, any women that have done missions. So the church has a long history. I call it the church, whereas, I mean, I'm sure most of the world considers the church the Catholic church. Uh, But where in Utah, when we say the church, we mean the Mormon church. Uh, Like, they basically own half of downtown Salt Lake City, in case you didn't know. Like, actual, yeah, area. Um, But it, it has a long history of internalized misogyny and, uh, promoting masculinity and, uh, traditional family roles. Uh, the women were encouraged to be homemakers, stay home while the man is the breadwinner and, you know, gets all the glory. Um, it's still true. And there are many people that are vocal about it, but the people that hold the leadership roles in the church are, are men. There are a few women leaders, Mm -hmm. um, but they are specifically over women only. Um, so it's, it's like a big deal for men in the church to perform almost. And so women weren't pressured quite as much to go on missions, um, because it was acceptable. I know I, I could like name several men that went on missions because they felt pressured to by the culture, even though they didn't want to go. And 
they felt like they wouldn't be able to find a wife if they didn't go on a mission mm-hmm. or they'd be judged or uh, their eternal salvation would be uh, on the line if they didn't go on a mission. It's very... That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. You're like, fine, I'll just go for two years, get it over with. Like, I don't want to have to deal with everybody looking at me dirty when I go to the store because they think that I wasn't worthy enough to go on a mission or I chose not to go on a mission. It's it's a very, very uh, guilt-ridden religion. Okay. So where did your husband do his mission? He, they call it serving. So he served in Guatemala. Okay. And then he is Spanish. Okay. And (laughs) how old were you when you guys got married? And did you get married in a, a, I'm sorry if I'm not using the correct language, but did you get married in a Mormon temple? (laughs) I don't get offended. You're good. (laughs) Um, yes. So, uh, we met when we were like 23 and that's another thing that is pressured in the churches to get married young and have babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Utah has again, another statistics I'm, I'm throwing out then I'd actually don't know the statistic go Google it. Uh, but Utah has a really high, uh, number of children that people have. Like we, it's like four, kids per household is average, which Mm -hmm. is a lot. Wow. And, um, like I have a cousin, I mean, I have cousins that are part of 13 kids in their family and it's just (laughs) normal. (laughs) Uh, wow. So we met when we were 23 on an app that was similar to Tinder. Um, and it, there's a lot of pressure when you meet to get married quickly and a lot of that has to do with the fact that sex before marriage isn't a, a thing that is uh, okay in the religion. And so we actually got married like a year after we'd met. And Spencer and I had a really unique relationship because for the first three months, we only Skyped. And so I feel like it created a foundation that was a little bit different because we communicated rather than like having just this physical intimacy or, uh, we, we really had to try to foster our relationship. And so, uh, a year plus that in Mormon terms is a long time to be together. <laughs> there are people that get married like three weeks after they've met. Holy shit. Yeah. And I would say the average is three months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, uh, it's not uncommon to have like 18 to 21 year old brides and that's totally normal. Then they start having babies, you know, I mean, technically at 23, I was starting to push like the old age for, (laughs) I was starting to be considered a maiden (laughs) and, uh, Like people at 25 that are really religious in the Mormon church, they kind of have existential crises. If they're not married by 25, they think like, oh no, like I'm never going to find a mate. The ones left are crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's a very interesting pressure. And we did get married in the temple. Um, So when people go on missions, they go, it's called going through the temple. Um, so when you're younger, 
you can visit the temple and go to certain areas of the temple if you are worthy. And that is determined through interviews that you have with your bishop. Okay. Remember that's like your preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so they ask you stuff that's very vulnerable and intimate. Like, have you had sexual relations? It's like a very intense interview. Um, and that's a whole other thing. We could do a, an entire podcast on this. <laughs> um, but when you get married or you choose to serve a mission, you go through the temple is what they call it. And that's when people get their garments, like we talked about earlier. And um, so it's not, you can choose to go through the temple whenever you want, but it's very sacred. And so most people choose to wait until they get married. And so um, a lot of the men have garments and have gone through the temple before women, because like what we talked about, they served missions mm-hmm. and the women didn't. So they usually wait to go through until they get married. And so that is a whole other thing too. Going through the temple is kind of wild because nobody, I mean, it's not my parents fault because they, I don't want them to like hear this and feel bad, but the church uses techniques to, to normalize things and kind of brainwash people Um, and my parents, the way that they brought me up, they were just doing the best that they could with what they knew. I mean, they're, they're great people. Uh, but they, like, I'd be, I'd ask them, so what happens when you go through the temple? And they felt that it was so sacred that they, and they'd been told that they couldn't share it with me. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what happened going through the temple until the day that I went through the temple. Like I didn't know like what ceremonies would be performed. And, uh, it's not like crazy, like sacrificing type stuff, but they are very cultish like ceremonies where they're rituals and you have to do certain things a certain way. And Mm -hmm. like, um, it's, it's just, it's very unnerving when you're going through it because you're not prepared for it because nobody would tell you before the event, the day that it happened. I just threw a lot of information on you. So yeah, if you need to process or ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me take a minute here. Um, well, I, I think it's interesting that you said that it's very cultish because that was the word that kind of came to mind for me, but also I wasn't sure if that would be an okay thing for me to say, because I, I know that like, obviously your parents are are still part of the church and like, I don't want to offend, but just the, you know, kind of how you were talking about like the, the very specific like rituals and kind of the, like the fact that, you know, certain things can be spoken about, certain things can't. And like, that actually sounds like a very, so that was like, that was your wedding day, like going through the temple and like all of these kind of like rituals and things that you had to do. So I did it a week before. Um, but my wedding day was my second time being in the full extent of the temple. And, uh, there's even requirements about what you wear. So you're not allowed in the temple unless you are what we call, we say it's, uh, what is it? You have to have a recommend. A recommend is basically a leader in your congregation has said, yes, this person is worthy. They're an upstanding member. They are allowed to go into the temple. And so like my, um, 
best friend didn't get to see me get married because she wasn't LDS. Uh, like if people are Mormon and they technically don't get that recommendation, they can't be in the temple. So there's lots of people that couldn't see their kids get married. That didn't happen in our situation, but I've heard of other people where their parents weren't LDS and they weren't allowed in the temple. And so, uh, Oh, and what I was getting at is, um, as far as what you wear in the temple, it's very specific and it has to be a certain color of white. And so my dress worked in the temple. I wore my mom's dress for my wedding and that has nothing to do with religion. That's just because, you know, I think it's cool. Yeah. And, um, but, but some women can't wear their wedding dress in the temple because of how it looks or it's too ostentatious or not. It's too cream instead of white. You know, it, it's a very interesting. Wow. I mean, I've definitely seen, because like I said, I had uh, quite a few friends like growing up that were Mormon and, you know, we're connected on Facebook. So I saw all their like wedding photos and the dresses do, you know, they're very like conservative, like zero cleavage. Like there's always some sort of like cap shoulder sleeve situation going on. But I had no idea that there's like a very specific white that you have to wear as well. Um, okay. So you guys, you get married Mm -hmm. and then at what point, like how many, how much longer afterwards did you decide to leave the church? And was there anything else, um, that kind of, you know, spurred that decision? You know, I, I'm a very rational, logical person. So growing up, I always had questions that went unanswered and people would give the same thing that you probably hear in other religions. It's, Oh, well, have you prayed about it? Have you read your scriptures? Have you been doing all the right things? And have you been in places that are conducive to, you know, feeling enlightened? And, um, that was never enough for me. And, but I, I, I'm an optimist and I wanted to believe that everybody around me, um, because all of the people that I know, in the Mormon church are educated, they're successful, they're great at networking, they're business owners, you know, these are all people that I wanted to believe understood. Like if these people are who they are, why would this not be true? You know, so I kind of denied those feelings for a long time. And Mm -hmm. um, when I first went through the temple and got my garments, that was one of the moments that I, uh, had a kind of a crisis almost. Um, it's really weird. It's like wearing biker shorts underneath your clothing or Spanx, I guess. And it was really hard for me because I suddenly felt fat. I had a lot of body image issues because putting clothing on top of other clothing is hard. I was wearing two layers of stuff and I, I already have like sensitivity with clothing. So that was difficult. And, um, the, they weren't made with women in mind. So they're not like airy down there. They, they, a lot of people, um, this is like TMI, but a lot of women get UTIs from wearing these garments because they're not getting wow. enough, yeah, circulation down there. Um, the, so I remember we had to go to the mall after I got them and I had to like go up a size in jeans to, to fit my jeans over them. And of course, like I wear tight skinny jeans, but 
still, I cried. I was like, this is what I have to do. And, um, even the most conservative of tops with cap sleeves and, um, like weren't showing cleavage would still show like my garments on the outside of them. And I, that was really hard for me as somebody that likes to express myself with fashion. I felt like I was being stifled and suffocated and like literally suffocated and mentally suffocated. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the times where I was like, okay, I don't know. Like if, if this God that I believe in is as kind as I think that he is, why would he care so much? Like, why would he want me to feel this way? Right. And so, um, taking off my garments is taking your garments off is a big deal in the Mormon religion. Like, like I said, if you're not wearing them, people just assume you're not worthy. And so I took them off and it was like a, a big, I thought that maybe I would be like smitten, like lightning bolts would hit me. Like she's choosing not to wear her garments. Like, God smites her, you know, cause, um, there are people that honestly believe and, you know, I can't fault them because again, they have been surrounded by this religion and taught these ways and they just have honest, pure faith. And I think that there's something to be said about that. You know, it, I admire people that, that live on that. Um, but there are stories where people are like, yeah, I got in a car accident and I had bruises all over my body, except for where my garments were covering my skin, like that type of thing. Or like I was burned on every inch of my body, except for where my garments were. And so I honestly thought that by not wearing my garments, that something terrible would happen to me. Oh my God. And like a week went by and I was like, wait, like, I think I'm actually fine. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> and I, I, it sounds so crazy from the outside, but I'm hoping that maybe somebody that's LDS or, uh, it's called ex Mormon. When you leave the church, there's like an entire subreddit dedicated to it. And so I'm sure somebody will relate this listening to this, but, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Where I was on a tangent about how you kind of came to the decision. Yeah. Um, so it was actually really difficult and I, I haven't really talked about this on my blog because it took me a while to, I relate it. I, I don't want to take away from anybody that has come out, you know, as a uh, queer, but I, feel like I can empathize a little bit with it in regards to like being able to tro show your true self. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to hide my feelings, of not um, believing in the religion or not wanting to live that religion. I had to hide it from my family. I had to hide it from my friends. You know, like I would leave the house and like have like a coat on to cover myself. So my dad wouldn't see that I wasn't wearing my garments, you know? Um, or I remember uh, one of my neighbors who was also Mormon, she saw me, um, nobody was home. I was wearing like spaghetti straps and I was like, Oh, like, sorry, I'm not wearing my garments. Like I legitimately apologized to her because I was worried that she was judging me and my salvation by not wearing like these sacred underwear. Wow. Yeah. Um, and when I took them off, it was, it was hard on our marriage because my husband believed in the church at the time. And, um, we both went through our own processes of leaving the church. And I wanted to make sure that I never put any pressure on him because 
I knew the guilt that was associated with it. And so I didn't want him to feel like the guilt was coming from me or to resent me. feel like I was pressuring him to believe a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I took my garments off, he was like, what does this mean about our marriage? Um, Mormons believe that you get married in the temple for eternity. So like when you die, you are still with your, your partner after. And so he felt like when I took my garments off, that that meant I didn't want to be married like for eternity because, you know, and so that was like hard and it's hard for anybody that has differing beliefs when they're married together. And so luckily we are stronger than ever. Um, Neither of us are in the church, but it's still something that we have to kind of be careful with and around certain crowds, you have to be careful what you say and, uh, yeah, you, you just have to kind of know your audience when you're talking about things because it's so ingrained in the culture of Utah. Yeah. Um, and so when you came to that decision and so it sounds like you left the church before your husband, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So how did, and it kind of reminds me of what you're saying of, um, you know, relating it to someone coming out as queer. Like, how did your family and friends take that? I mean, I hid it for a really long time. And uh, for a long time, I just went through the motions of going to church and I hated it. But I was like, I'm going to church to keep up appearances. So I don't have to explain it to people. And at the time, Spencer and I were living with my parents. So that made it even more of like a pressure cooker because I felt like I had to be a certain way and act a certain way and say certain things, even though I wasn't technically believing it or like say the prayer at dinner, even though I didn't like feel that. And um, it it was hard. And, you know, Mm -hmm. my dad did one day say, Hey, are you not wearing your garments anymore? And like I said, that seems like such a weird, intimate question. Like, are you wearing your underwear? But that's totally normal in the Mormon religion. And so, mm-hmm. um, and to him that signified that I, I was like on my way out and eventually I was able to have a candid conversation with my mom about it and yeah. talk to her about how I felt. And, um, she is a very understanding person. And like we talked about earlier, she just knows how to empathize with people. And so that she was the first person that I really told um, that was close in family. Oh, well, my brother, I have a brother that's like six years younger than me and he stopped going to church when he was 16. So he knew it was no big deal to tell him. But, um, as far as like parents and friends go, my mom was the first one that I really opened up to about it. I'm like, Hey, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going back. (laughs) And, um, everybody knows now, like in my family, but, sometimes it's still like swept under the rug. It's like the elephant in the room. Like you, everybody knows, but everybody still hopes that one day you'll come back and decide you want to go to church again. And, uh, they want their grandkids raised in the church. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like hush, hush. And I, I'm pretty sure that people, because you know, people that were in your congregation, you get to know them so well from going to church on Sunday and, I'm sure that like it would be kind of a shock for many of them to find out that we weren't Mormon anymore if they don't follow me on social media or for whatever reason, you know? 
Yeah. And so how long ago was that that you left the church? Hmm. I would say that I began the process five years ago, um, but it's been a long... I've had to like kind of self-soothe and unlearn things. And I still do things where I'll catch myself and I'll be like, wait, that that's not who I am. That's like my former like mentality as a Mormon that's like creating this bias or this lens that I'm looking through and I need to kind of unlearn certain behaviors or uh so it's still something that is a process because like I said, I was I was in the church for 24 years. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, (laughs) yeah, I mean, your whole life, I mean, up till about five years ago, that's like a lot of just kind of ingrained, like we were talking about earlier, like thought patterns and, and kind of beliefs that you held to be true or, or others around you held to be true for so long. Um, so how, um, how do you feel now? It wasn't until more recently that I felt comfortable being outspoken about it on social media. Um, I still keep a lot of things private because I'm afraid of the judgment. I I think that a lot of my audience is Mormon because I have a a big Utah following. And so that's just automatic, you know? And most of the people that are close to me know that I I might not be Mormon and they may, may be Mormon, but that doesn't change our relationship or what I think of them. And um, it can be uncomfortable for people that are religious like that, like we talked about earlier, to hang out with non-religious people because they think like... <laughs> that you just want to party all the time or like you, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of interesting that it does that, but um, it was hard for me to really fully feel comfortable talking about it on social media because I was afraid of that judgment being put on me and I wasn't ready to, I hadn't processed it enough myself in order to share it with other people. But now kind of uh, similar to what we were saying earlier about using your platform for good I also know that I have people in my audience that are former Mormons or are going through that loss of faith. It couldn't maybe even be just like a different religion, like they were Christian or whatever, and they are unlearning religion themselves. And so um, maybe me being vocal about them, that helps them through the process. And so uh, I want to kind of be like, hey, you know, like, I've gone through this. I'm here to talk if you need to talk because you you really need somebody that understands it to kind of give you that therapeutic value. Um, And so, yeah, I want to use my platform to help other people feel like they're not alone. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and speaking so openly about it and your experience. I mean, it's obviously like a very deeply, you know, personal experience. Um, But I think kind of, you know, similar to what we were saying about how your your account, you know, sharing awareness and resources for mental health tools and helping people through things and, and feeling seen and um, adding tools to their toolbox. I think this is like another example of that for, you know, for a different type of person that's going through something else as well. And especially because when you are in that, your entire community and probably family is like, 
in that religion as well. And so there's not really anyone that you can, um, you know, for some people it may be different, but I would imagine it would feel like there's not really anyone close to you that you can talk to openly about that. So to be able to like, yeah, hear that from, you know, someone else and kind of have different, different thoughts and reflections. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're doing something really positive by speaking your truth and talking so openly about your experience. So thank you so much for sharing it. Of course. Thank you for being open to talking about it. I have to say this is probably the most vulnerable I've been on a podcast or maybe even social media as a whole, because uh, this isn't a part of my story that I've told yet. So thank you for giving me uh, an air, a safe place to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really, really appreciate you um, joining me. And as we kind of wrap things up, um, I just want to know like what what's on the horizon for you? What are you excited about? It could be personally, professionally, whatever. I am currently working on some ebooks. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, like ebooks with an S. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that when I was doing these, I was including all different facets of my social media. And so I'm doing ebooks that are specific to like what I talk about, you know, fashion, beauty, uh, locations in Utah. And um, I am creating those for an email subscription list. So if you sign up for the email subscription, you will get a free ebook and you can choose which one you want. But I've been working on that. It's not complete yet. And then I'm also really looking forward to traveling with Babes That Wander. That's honestly on my horizon. (laughs) I know. I can't wait. I'm so excited. It's like, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Where can everyone find you? Um, All of my social media handles are the same and my name is spelled a little differently. So I will spell it for you. It's L-A-U-R-Y-N-C-A-K-E-S. And it's also laurencakes.com if you want to look at my website. Amazing. Lauren, I appreciate you so much. Like I said, I have just found a lot of inspiration in you and the content you share and how vocal you are about important issues and coming on today and just like speaking your truth and being vulnerable and open. um, I think that people are going to find a lot of value in this episode. So thank you so much for joining. Yay. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Alrighty. Thanks, Lauren. Take care. Bye. Wow, what an interesting conversation with Lauren. I so appreciate her openness and vulnerability here. Like she said, she had not previously shared this part of her story. It's obviously very personal and up until now, very private. Um, and she hadn't shared it publicly or, or on social media before. So um, I just, I feel very honored that she chose the What the Fab podcast as her platform to share this part of her story and to go there. And I hope that you as a listener are open, you know, whether you are part of the Mormon church, whether you are part of a different religion or not, I hope that you're just open to listening to her story. We are obviously just sharing her experience and her story, and um, there's no hidden agenda behind it. Um, We're not trying to make people believe one way or the other, but if you are someone who has been struggling with your inner truth, whether that is having questions being raised a certain way within a certain community, within a certain religion or group, or questioning other parts of your life and and wondering if you are living 
you know, authentically and truly to yourself, I think that you can find value in this episode because I really feel that it was a story of empowerment and really living your living your truth and really being in alignment with that, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how many eyebrows it raises. And I think that that's something that everyone can identify with. So all that being said, huge thank you again to Lauren for joining me for this episode. And if you as a listener enjoyed this conversation, please take a second to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me out as I grow my new podcast here. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe through whatever platform it is that you listen through and that way you'll have these episodes queued up in your playlist and lastly snap a screenshot share this episode on your stories tag me I'm at WTFab and Lauren is at Lauren Cakes and she spells her name L-A-U-R-Y-N and we can't wait to hear what you think and as always I'll be back next week with a fresh new episode for you and I'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.